0: begin our worship this morning by confessing that our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Receive the Lord's reading. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's open the Bible, God's word this, this morning to Leviticus chapter 4, the verses 32 to 35 we'll read there and then Luke 1, the verses 57 to 80. So Leviticus 4, beginning at verse 32, and Leviticus 4 is about laws for sin offerings, and last part, last section, about unintentional sins, bringing sacrifices for unintentional sins in the temple. Beginning at verse 32, if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they killed the burnt offering then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour it out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the lord's food offerings and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. And then we turn to Luke chapter 1. Beginning at verse 57. And as you know, the uh, birth of Christ was announced to Mary and then She went to visit Elizabeth. And then John, while she was there, John the Baptist was born. And we read from verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, Blessing God, and fear came on all the neighbor's. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, Then what will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew strong, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The text for the proclamation this morning is. Luke 1, verse 69. Luke 1, 69, and it says there, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We'll focus on the horn of salvation. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust you know something of what happened to Zechariah the priest before he spoke the words of prophecy in which we find our text for this morning. You remember how he had gone the discipline of the Lord after he had not believed the word of the Lord through his angel Gabriel in the temple when he had to bring the incense offering. He didn't believe the angel who proclaimed that he and Elizabeth would have a child who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord to save his people. Zechariah figured that he and his wife were way too old, so the Lord took away his ability to speak. But the Lord is merciful because he's going to fulfill his purpose no matter how impossible that may seem. Zechariah would only be unable to speak until until the time of John's birth. So when the miracle of John's birth took place the spirit opened Zechariah's heart and also opened his mouth to prophesy. At first he was unable to speak but once he accepted God's great work he was unable to stay silent. The spirit moved him to prophesy. He said blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people at the beginning of of his uh, prophecy. And you might wonder about those words of Zechariah. Redemption hadn't taken place yet. But in faith, Zechariah already sees how faithful the Lord is. He was reminded of that again. And he sees how faithful the Lord is to what he promises, and he speaks about the Lord's work of redemption as if it has already been completed in the child in Mary's womb. The child that John had to announce had come into the world. And therefore, he says in our text, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And this morning, let's pay attention to that horn of salvation and consider, first of all, what that horn stands for, where that horn is revealed, and what the horn points to. First of all, what that horn stands for. You realize, congregation that that horn of salvation in the house of David refers directly to our Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. Christ is referred to by many names, the Good Shepherd, the Bright Morning Star, the Son of Righteousness, and more. But also as the horn of salvation, also through the, the Old Testament too, the horn of salvation. We sang about that too in some of the songs we sang. All those names given to the Lord Jesus in the Bible are symbolic, of course. Each of them describes a certain facet of his work of redemption, also the case with the name Horn of Salvation. That name highlights the incredible power of his salvation because the horn is a symbol of strength, of power, of might. Think of the African buffalo with its big horns, actually the most dangerous animal in Africa, more dangerous than the lion even. Or think of one of those bighorn sheep in the Rocky Mountains, those uh, rams in the Rocky Mountains with huge curled horns to defend the harem of sheep. Those animals charge right at their enemies and toss them aside with their horns. The Bible often uses the symbol of horns in that sense. For instance, in the book of Daniel, Daniel in the book of Daniel and in Revelation, all those visions about Beasts and and animals with horns. A horn then represents great strength and power to deliver. So when Zechariah prophesied at the birth of John, he applied that image of the horn of deliverance from the Old Testament to the Virgin Mary's unborn child. A horn of victorious power in the house of David. How inappropriate that description must have sounded at that moment when Zechariah spoke about it. Mary's unborn child was tiny and helpless at that moment. And where was the power in the house of David at that time? The house of David was nothing but a fallen house, A sawed-off stump, as Isaiah had prophesied. And not only that, Israel at that time was under the dominion of the great Caesar. Caesar Augustus and his mighty legions of well-disciplined, well-armed soldiers. They had conquered almost all the known world at that time. Even into Britain. And Caesar had put Herod the Edomite on the throne in Jerusalem the tyrant who later ordered the massacre of all the baby boys under two years of age in Bethlehem. It was a dark and dangerous time for Israel and for the house of David. So how could Zechariah speak of a horn of salvation for Israel and the house of David? Well, congregation, he could say that because God is almighty and God is always faithful to what he promises, faithful to his word. And the house of David may have looked like a a write-off at the time. And humanly speaking, the people of God were a lost cause. But God doesn't speak according to human reasoning or potential. He speaks as the God who is mighty to bring to pass what he has promised no matter what. And he had promised from of old that his salvation would spring from the house of David. And it would be a mighty, a mighty thing. And congregation, the low position of that house of David and the weakness of Israel at that time would make that salvation all the more amazing. God had chosen what is weak in order to shame the strong. He makes use of what is as nothing in order to humiliate those who think there's something. The Savior would come from the house of David, even if that house hung by a thread, so to speak. And God's people would see salvation even if there was darkness on every side. God does what he has promised, even and especially when people think that's not possible anymore, Lord. Congregation, it's wonderful to hear that in Zechariah's song and to see how that came to pass over time. And the God Zechariah sang about is the same one we love and worship today. The whole world may say there's no future for the Christian faith and for the church in the modern world. There's no room today in society anymore for Christians who still want to go by what the Bible says, who refuse to work on a Sunday, who still call same-sex relationships sinful, who are against abortion, who are against euthanasia, and so on. They shouldn't be allowed to teach their children that the Bible is the absolute truth. Maybe that kind of thinking out there makes you frightened for the future of your children and for the future of the church in our country, too. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning. The bread and wine are the signs and seals of God's promises to forgive us in Christ and to nourish our faith by his Spirit and to let us celebrate and, and to let us celebrate with our Lord at the eternal feast, that, that feast that's coming. And just like in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary, we we can believe and trust that these things are and will be taking place. They it will happen. God will in faithfulness and by his power certainly fulfill his whole purpose of salvation. He again guarantees that for us with our Lord's Supper celebration today too. I will do this for you and for the future. We see in Luke 1 that the heart of John's father is filled with amazement at the faithfulness and the might of God's working toward the salvation he promised in the house of David long ago. And so at a time... When the child was still unborn and when the house of David seemed doomed and when the Roman Caesar reigned supreme and Herod the Edomite sat on the throne in Jerusalem, Zechariah the priest was filled with the Holy Spirit and sang praise to the God of Israel. Blessed be the God of Israel for he has visited and he has redeemed his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, the revelation of that horn. Congregation, where is that powerful horn of salvation revealed? In the first place, in the womb of that humble Virgin Mary, and later in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem. And that's pretty sobering if you think about it, right? How can the power of salvation be in that child, a horn of salvation? Well, you need the eye of faith. If you just look at that baby without the eye of faith, you just see a baby like every other baby. But when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to look with faith, then, like those shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem, you see not just a tiny baby, but a horn of salvation. Then you realize this is Emmanuel, God Almighty with men. His helplessness confuses all our human reasoning, but it highlights the power of God's saving grace in him. And the power of that horn especially came to light on Golgotha. Later on, Golgotha. Three men crucified on that hill outside Jerusalem, condemned to death. The middle one didn't seem any different from the other two. Where is that powerful horn of salvation then? People passing by shook their heads and some said he saved others, he cannot save himself. And others mocked and said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross, then we'll believe in you. And yet, this is how the power of salvation was displayed, became manifest. For congregation, what did Jesus' power to save consist of? It consisted of his love. In particular, the blood he gave, his precious blood. Oh, he could easily have come down from that cross. He could have summoned his legions of angels to strike the Roman soldiers, as he told Pilate before. But he was much more powerful staying on the cross with the nails through his hands and his feet. That was his immense power, that he, in love, remained on that cross, suffering And dying for his people. For my sins and for yours. The power of full salvation. And life is in his blood. And there's you know there's an old hymn that goes like this. Would you be free from the power from the burden of sin. There's power in the blood power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win. There's wonderful power in the blood. And that's so true. So true, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Satan is terribly mighty. But he's deathly afraid of one thing. And that's the blood of Jesus. The Lamb of God. And the Lion of Judah. And so when we fight against Satan and his temptations day by day, then we need to be with that child in the manger, with that crucified one on Golgotha, with, with Jesus. And then we need to kneel before him because he is the horn of, Of salvation in the house of his father David. Zechariah is saying about that. In him we have abundant redemption. And his blood covers all our sins. His precious blood cleanses our souls. His death is the death of our death. In him we have everything to need, that we need to live and die. Comforted. Oh, the power of sin is great. Sin always results sooner or later in death and destruction. And the only way it can be forgiven. And it can be resisted in your life. Is if you humbly kneel before Jesus. The horn of salvation. In your own powerlessness. For then, when we are weak. He is strong. His Strength is made perfect in our weakness. And then we experience, too, that he is truly the horn of our salvation. So we've paid attention to what that horn stands for and how that horn is revealed as the horn of salvation. We conclude with one more thing concerning that horn, where that horn points to. Horns are mentioned in another context in the Bible. In the temple court in the Old Testament, you had the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded that there was to be a horn on each of the four corners of that altar in the temple. What were those four horns for? They weren't there just to hold the animals on the altar while they were being sacrificed as sin offerings to God. They had another symbolic purpose. When someone had been accused of committing a serious crime in Israel, that person could flee to the temple and take refuge there by taking hold of the horns of the altar. And if that person was able to do that, then he or she could be forgiven their misdeed. It could even be a matter of life or death. Holding on to those horns gave you the right to asylum. For instance, when David was old, his son Adonijah tried to grasp the kingship, even though he knew Solomon was the one that God wanted to reign on the throne of David. When Adonijah tried to take the throne and learned that David had crowned Solomon king. In the meantime, we're told in 1 Kings 1, 49 to 51, that his supporters melted away and Adonijah himself went into the temple, into the tabernacle and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon mercifully granted Adonijah his life on the condition that he submit to Solomon and give up the claim to the throne. You see, those horns on the altar represented saving power, forgiving power. And that's because they were horns on which we, as we read in Leviticus, the priest would always paint the blood of the animal offered as sin offering. And the result was that those horns of the altar with all the blood on them possessed saving power. If you grabbed them, the blood on them provided you with refuge, with the possibility of being forgiven, forgiven what you did, and your life was safe. There's a way of escape from the punishment for sin for those who had grasped those blood-covered horns. And you realize, congregation, that 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 points to our text too, where old Zechariah prophesies about Mary's unborn baby and proclaims that in him, a horn of salvation has been lifted up in the house of David. Jesus is that blood-covered horn of refuge from the just punishment for our sin. His broken body and blood, his poured-out blood, as we remember with the Lord's Supper, represents the complete forgiveness of all our sins. So, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, too, seek your life outside of yourself and embrace the child born in Bethlehem in humble faith and repentance. He's the horn of salvation that you need to take hold of in faith. Take hold of him. What do you hold on to in your life? Do your spiritual hands cling day by day to that horn of salvation? Or do your hands hold on to other things which you think will give your life meaning and purpose and direction and happiness? Remember that those things are all temporary and passing. Those other things, if they are what your life is about, you're going to discover one day that your hands have nothing at all to hold on to. No, cling to that horn of salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And the Lord's Supper celebration is the assurance that then Jesus Christ is truly your refuge and that for his sake God declares you innocent before him and declares you heir to life everlasting. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.